Hey everybody, welcome to the Quest for Life podcast. I'm Dr. Ed Slover, and I'm fiercely passionate about having the opportunity to help shorten the learning curve for the people I'm blessed to have come into my life. Originally, this episode was going to be an interview with an amazing leader. Unfortunately, Hurricane Ian had different plans. My guest lives in Florida, and he was unable to make the interview for obvious reasons. Fortunately, he and his family are safe, and I wish them well, and I wish all the residents of Florida Godspeed. So today, I'll be discussing how we make errors in judgment and decision-making due to cognitive bias. The concept of cognitive bias was first introduced by researchers Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky in 1972, and since then, researchers have described a number of different types of biases that affect our decision-making in a wide range of areas, such as social behavior, education, management, behavioral economics, healthcare, and business, just to name a few. Cognitive biases are errors in thinking that occur when people are processing and interpreting information in the world around them, and it affects their judgment and decision-making, and it's often the result of a person's brain attempting to simplify information processing. And this makes sense because our brain is largely about efficiency. In a previous podcast, I mentioned that as babies, we have something like 200 billion neurons. And as adults, we have half that number. Well, what the brain is doing is maximizing efficiency when you don't learn to play the piano as a child, when you don't learn a martial art, when you don't learn a foreign language as a child, your brain pairs off those neurons because they're simply unnecessary. Now, the brain is a miracle in, in so many ways, not the least of which due to neuroplasticity that allows us to learn new skills even as we age in light of the fact that we have half as many neurons as we did when we were babies. So back to cognitive bias, these are mental rules of thumb, and they're often called heuristics. It's a really funny word, heuristics, H-E-U-R-I-S-T-I-C-S, heuristics. And these allow us to make decisions quickly and allow us to solve problems. And while they're surprisingly accurate, such biases can get us into trouble and or allow us to miss out on opportunities. So I'm going to cover a number of different biases that are fairly common and have you think about how they can potentially show up in your life. The first one is known as availability bias. And you can even replace bias with heuristic. So availability bias or heuristic basically tells us that we make decisions based on the information that we have most readily available in our minds. So I'm going to give you two examples of this. The first post 9-11. Once the Federal Aviation Administration reopened airports, they were ghost towns. And I traveled a lot at the time, and I would be on planes with, you know, 137 seat capacity, and there'd only be 37 seats full. Now, I'm six foot four, and the world's not built for six foot four, so anytime I have the opportunity to stretch out on the plane, I take it and enjoy it thoroughly. And being one of 37 people on an airplane with the 137 seat capacity, I mean, this, this was outstanding. And the reasons are, are seemingly obvious why people didn't travel by air post 9-11, because they were afraid. They had the memory, the most readily information they had available is that 
airplanes can be turned into missiles. And while that situation was overwhelmingly tragic, it actually shows up in our lives or did back then as a flaw in thinking. So hang with me on this. Post 9-11, airport security was never safer. In fact, you basically got strip searched whenever you went through the airport. In fact, it is it was safer to fly back then than it is today, and yet the planes are full today. So the information that they have most readily available was the fear associated with how airplanes could be used to cause catastrophic damage. And it's, it was actually a flawed uh, thought process because at that time, that was the single safest time to fly in U.S. aviation history. The second example of availability bias, you, you may recall, and I'm not going to name the name of this company, but you may recall there was a large bank in the United States that was caught scamming its customers. The design of this scam was to open as many as eight different types of accounts for either new or current customers. It created massive financial damage. It wrecked credit reports of, of customers. So anyone that was uh, directly affected by this, I'm not talking about them. But if you were a customer at uh, another bank, you know, a competitor of this particular bank, and you were asked, would you ever conduct business with that bank? The overwhelming answer would be no. And then when you inquire a little bit further, it's like, well, they, they scanned those people out of all of those things. Today, if you need to open a checking or savings account, if you need an auto loan, if you need a mortgage, if you need a business line of credit, that's the bank you want to go to. And yet people are still a little bit leery of it. The reality is there's a spotlight on this particular organization. They're crossing every T, they're dotting every I, they're trying to regain market share, they're doing everything right. And if you need a banking product, that would be the bank that you would ultimately want to go to. And yet the information people have most readily available is the fraud. So that's availability bias. The next is representativeness bias. This shows up in a variety of, uh, of ways. The one example I'm going to give you on this one is imagine you're a hiring manager and you see an application come across your desk and the applicant graduated from the college or university that you graduated from. And all of a sudden you view this person as a representation of yourself and you don't know whether or not they were on the C's Get Degrees program. You have no idea about their work ethic. What you're doing is you're applying your bias uh, to them because they graduated the, from this university that you did and you're applying that bias to say, hey, look, I know what it took to get through college. I understand the rigor of the academics and they must have you know, put the same level of energy and effort into it that I did, even though we have absolutely no idea whether or not that's true. So that's representativeness bias. The next is the halo effect. Now, what this is, is a global appraisal. It's when we make a global appraisal of a person from a singular thing. We basically put the halo over their head on one particular thing. So for example, we believe that better looking people tend to have better lives as a, on the whole. We believe that better looking people have better careers, that they have happier marriages, they have better relationships with their kids. And it's clearly a, a flaw in thinking because we have no way of knowing whether or not 
you know, their their marriage is a dumpster fire or not. We have no idea whether or not their their kids are misbehaving. We have no idea whether or not their career is just a mess. We just don't know. But we we make a global appraisal about uh, an individual based on a singular thing. I know I dealt with that in my career a number of years ago, where I have I hold a doctor of management in organizational leadership, and I would train personal trainers on nutrition and nutritional supplements and invariably I would get questions about pharmaceuticals and I would kindly joke with them to say you know I'm not that kind of doctor I don't I'm I'm not an expert in that particular area and yet I would be asked those questions so that is the halo effect the next one is fundamental attribution error and self-serving bias example of this. Imagine you are a store manager at a large retailer and um, there's no competition around you. Your district manager comes in you, and is talking to you about your business results. You've had year-over-year growth. Everything is going incredibly well and you get asked, so gosh, you're running a really, a, a really solid operation here. What are you doing? And you're inclined to answer, gosh, I hire really well, I train and develop my team really, really well, I I make sure to manage the operating expenses very lean so more money flows through to bottom line profit, Uh, I, 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 I. So in that case, this is the fundamental attribution error where we overinflate our success, sort of internal environment, and minimize any external factors. And so then when we get into self-serving bias, this is when a competitor opens a quarter mile down the road and they're offering uh, more variety or less expensive products and we lose customers to that competitor. And then the district manager comes in and asks, gosh, what's happening? Year over year uh, growth is upside down. In fact, it's unfavorable. What, What are you doing to fix it? What's going on? And in that moment, what we do is we overemphasize now the external factors and minimize the internal factors, whereas before we were maximizing the internal factors and minimizing the external factors. And so we answer, gosh, well, as you know, we had a competitor open up down the road and we had customer attrition because of that. That Those are the reasons. And it's we, we move from taking way too much credit that is largely undeserved to then this self-preservation. And it, it's overly flawed in both sides of, uh, of that bias. The next one is escalating commitment. Now, I'm going to give you two examples on this one. Um, the second one just it makes me giggle when I think about it. But the first one is this is the, the CEO that got board approval for $5 million to create a new app that was going to revolutionize the industry. And during the development of the app, it's been a technical tire fire along the way, but the CEO then doubles down and requests another $2 million from the board because they just know it's going to work because it has to work. So they escalate their commitment to something, even in light of all of the evidence pointing to they should just, you know, cut it. Um, it, This is also ties in 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 some ways to the sunk cost fallacy. The other example that made me makes me giggle is um, and you're aware of this because you all went to high school. This is where you have 
uh, a couple that's been dating for a while and then you get wind that they broke up and you ask, my gosh, you broke up. I'm so sorry. What happened? And they're like, well, you know, I get invited over. All he does is play video games. He doesn't pay attention to me. And, you know, I would just kind of over it. And then three and a half minutes later, they're back together. And you ask, oh, my gosh, you know, what what happened? And you're like, well, he he's changed. He's just so different now. He invited me over. We talked for the first time in months and had a meaningful conversation. Uh, and, you know, he, he made these promises to me. That he's going to pay more attention to me. And this could go the other way um, as well. And then three and a half minutes later, they break up. And this goes on and on and on for nine more months or however long it goes on because uh, each person in that relationship is doubling down on a, a new commitment when you get to the end of that nine months and it's finally done and you're like, my gosh, had I known then what I know now, I, I, would, have, I would have never you know, put myself through this. So that is escalating commitment. The last one is the mother of all cognitive bias, known as confirmation bias. We see this show up all day, every day. The easiest example is answer the, just answer this question. The easiest example is what, what news program do Republicans typically watch? Or what news program do Democrats typically watch? And we know the answers to these, Fox News and CNN. And why do people do that? Well, the reason they do that is to feel better about themselves. We confirm our own bias. We confirm our own worldview to feel better about ourselves. I mean, the world's painful enough, so why look at anything else, right? But it's, it's a flawed thought process because the reality is if you really wanted to understand a, a, a larger picture, the Republican would watch CNN. The Democrat would watch Fox News. If, if for nothing else, no other reason just to round out the information that they're taking in. I know whenever I used to train trainers, as previously mentioned, you know, trainers are really good at movement patterns, but they generally aren't that knowledgeable about nutrition-related things. And so they defer to boneless, skinless, tasteless chicken breasts, brown rice, and bro broccoli. And if that's what they want to eat, that's great. But most people don't want to do that. And once they realize that most people don't want to do that, then they defer to one of the 30,000 fad diets that's listed with the Food and Drug Administration. And today, the, the, the hot new fad is keto. And most people don't even understand what that is. I mean, you're consuming 80 to 90% of your calories from fat and a small percentage from protein and very, very little carbohydrate. And so whenever you see a nutrition bar at the grocery store that has keto on it and it has six grams of fiber in it, well, guess what? You get kicked out of ketosis and that doesn't that ultimately undermines what you're attempting to do. So that is marketing 101. But what I did, knowing that, that trainers tend to defer to fad diets. I read is all of the books on fad diets from the Adkins program to Sugar Busters. I mean, just pick one. And I found it fascinating from a marketing perspective because it's marketing genius. I mean, all of that stuff is, is low-calorie diets disguised by some gimmick. And so that was the lens through which I looked at that. And the, the problem people have when it comes to 
learning the other side or the other side of the argument is that in some way they feel as though they have to adopt that worldview and or advocate for it. And that's absolutely not uh, the case. It's, it's something that shouldn't happen, shouldn't have to happen. But what it does is it rounds out the other side of the argument. And it, for me, it allowed me to be incredibly prepared to discuss the merits of that side of the argument and or poke holes in you know, those certain elements of that argument. And when you have a larger picture, you know, whether if you're in a conversation with someone or you're in a debate or an argument with someone, it really makes you dangerous because not only do you have your own, your own worldview, but you have, at least in part, the other side's worldview. So that's confirmation bias. The six biases I just described uh, are really just a handful of those that show up in our lives. And they show up for a variety of reasons, such as uh, emotions or individual motivations, social pressures, and even limitations from a person's mind being able to effectively process information. Keep in mind, though, that cognitive biases aren't necessarily all bad. Think about it this way. Imagine you're walking down a dark alley and you, there are shadows all around and you think you see movement within one of those shadows. Well, if in fact there is someone there or something there that can cause you harm, it makes a lot of sense to remove yourself from that situation where because you're biased towards self-preservation, you're biased towards, hey, you know, things in shadows could jump out at me, things in shadows could ultimately hurt me, and so you move beyond that. Conversely, cognitive bias can really allow us to miss a, a ton of opportunity. It also limits our capacity for making sound decisions, as in the examples I provided above. Research does suggest that we can minimize these bias, biases uh, but it requires really deliberate practice. Step one is to become aware of our bias. We need to gain an understanding of how these biases influence decision making. Step two is to consider the factors that influence our decision, such as emotional triggers or memories, and thinking about what influences our decisions can help us make better choices. And finally, we need to challenge our biases. We need to ask ourselves, what are some of the factors that I, I might have missed? Am I giving too much weight to certain other factors? And maybe most importantly, am I ignoring relevant information because it doesn't support my worldview? And remember, the goal here isn't to achieve flawless thinking, but rather to be incrementally better than we were yesterday. And as always, it's food for thought, fellow questers. You can contact the show at thequestforlife.com. That's thequestnumber4life.com. After you do, please consider leaving a five-star rating. And be sure to pass the Quest for Life podcast on to your friends. Thank you for joining the conversation.